Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, Pick it up today, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And, of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, I want to welcome you. I haven't cleared that music there, uh, Darren. You can't can home. So, uh, as long as it's three notes, it's fine. I, I, I just want to say that for a long time, our idea of uh, Bible study was limited to pondering such intangibles as what does God need with the starship? But these last few weeks, we've done a much we found religion. We, we've done a, a much deeper dive into uh, into Bible study. We, we, we looked at the Bible for the original Star Trek pilot. We looked at the Bible, the writer and director's guide for the next generation for Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager. We even did Star Trek Enterprise. And now we go back to the beginning. Genesis, the original Star Trek series Bible. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, 
to seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone before. about those other people but uh for me give me that old time religion <laughs> that old time religion that old time rock and roll baby that's right yeah yeah that's right he's not an evangelist he's an old timer <laughs> he's an old timer but uh this has been a fun series i have to say uh uh exploring these bibles uh and looking at the um the origins of a lot of these stories and characters and how much stayed and or how really how little stayed and how much changed over uh, the seasons. But it's been really interesting. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I found it uh, interesting to see the progression of how these Bibles were used. Um, in the in the beginning, it was uh, very much a, a method to sort of pitch the idea to uh, the studio, etc. But as uh, it became that there really wasn't a studio and that it was the uh, production company that would make the decisions about it, basically. Um, It became more of a tool to uh, help let everyone know what the show was supposed to be, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got to ask you, Ashley, because I'm sure you've had the same experience I had, uh, you know, before we became showrunners working on other people's shows, you know, where they hand you the Bible and you sort of read it and go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. This is never going to happen. No way. You know, or this sounds great and it never finds its way into the show. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the time. But I think that's the entire function of the of the of the Bible. Right. Very often the Bible is an aspirational document. Also, you know, it's simply evidence that no plan survives the first encounter with the enemy. Yeah. And the enemy is production. And the good news is that there are things that we learn in television as we move forward. Um, you know, we, we think that certain sets are always going to be with us. We're always going to use them. And then we never go there. We think that certain actors are really going to anchor our show. And then, no, it turns out to be the person that we least expected is the most interesting one to write for. And maybe someone who wasn't even the Bible turns out to be that. That's um, so funny you say that because, you know, I hadn't even thought of it until you mentioned it. But, I, I, you know, I think one of the great things about shooting in L.A. when we're shooting in L.A. as opposed to in Atlanta or Vancouver or Bulgaria, you know, it, it's um, it, it's when, you know, we were Fox. I'm thinking of H&X in particular was a show we did for TNT. And I remember at one point, you know, just walking to sets late at night uh, with Steve Krasier. And we're like, we are going to find the sets that we've never shot on before that we built. And it's literally like we were looking for rooms and we found them that had been built and never like virtually, if not, you know, and never used in the show. And we were just going to write scenes just to use stuff because it's true. You build these sets and then sometimes you never use them. Yeah, they just sit there and you even forget that they exist. They're a line item in the budget that like they're, they're nothing. It's so strange. It's like the, the Bible is really a glorified suggestion. I mean, sometimes, look, it's a great suggestion, um, but very often it just it, it doesn't survive actual production. It doesn't survive actual experience. But I think that's a good thing. It's like, um, you know, 
the the famous story about Babylon Five was always that you know that uh, J. Michael Straczynski had his five year plan. He had it all mapped out. And you know what? I'm sure that on some level he had some notion of what each of those five seasons was going to be. And God bless him. But the reality is you can't possibly know. Right. And if you do say ahead of time that, you know, exactly what those episodes are going to be in like your fifth season, you're kind of a fool if you stick to that plan, because it means you learn nothing. Well, not only that, production. not only that, he, like he certainly couldn't have anticipated losing half his cast. Absolutely you know, not. Um, there were so many changes that were unanticipated, like Michael O'Hare leaving at the end of the first season. And, you know, um, obviously, um, Claudia leaving at the end of the fourth season. Mm-hmm. So it, all those were were unanticipated. And and then, of course, he got thrown that curveball of it looked like the show was going to be canceled after four seasons. So he ends the show only to get picked up and then has to tread water for the fifth season. So, um, you know, I, I, I it's a, a monumental achievement and hats off to to Joe, but um, yeah, absolutely. To say I have it all figured out uh, for the next five years, uh, you know, that's virtually impossible in TV because things, things evolve, things change. And a lot of that comes, as you mentioned last week from the casting, it comes from, you know, it co- and it comes from your keys too. It could be your production designer who has an amazing idea that sends you in a completely different direction or, you know, or, 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 you know, uh, one if look at deep space nine, I don't think anyone, expected that by the seventh season you know garrick would be one of the most beloved characters who'd probably been in more of the episodes than some of the leads of course not i mean from the bible you wouldn't even know that he really existed existed. i mean (laughs) there's so many characters that are like that it could come from your production designer whom you've told to build sets that you'll never shoot on yeah yeah yeah. who would that be darren (laughs) would you know something about that there is a love-hate relationship between production and art department. Uh, it's a give and take. Mostly it's a take. But, you know, <laughs> it can also be like your set decorator, your art director, who puts things on the set, you know, like it could be the captain's ready room or something like that, that informs the character, Absolutely. you know? And, and you're like, oh, look at that. What is that? And then you figure out, oh, this is something they got on a mission. What was that mission? Who, you know, and somebody died on that mission. And so, you, or, know, you-, you know, you could have a, a piece of set deck that came from an episode where the entire point was you were hunting down the very origins of uh, intelligent life in the galaxy. And you happen to have it on your desk, but when you find it at the end of your first movie, you just kind of toss it over your shoulder. Like it's not, it shatters into pieces. That's right. Good job, Captain Picard. (laughs) No, absolutely. And you you think I got to tell you after, after studying being a student of Star Trek for all these years, that, you know, on the first season when we did Pandora, I, you know, I, money was tight. So I didn't build the cave set. And it was like the stupidest thing. I I, I scouted these great caves. I'm going to use these actual caves. Yeah, we always need great caves in Bulgaria. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, they had a, but, you know, the second season, what was the first thing I built? A freaking cave <laughs> set. <laughs> you know? Um but, uh, you know, the first rule of sci-fi, it's always, build, always a build a freaking game set. It's not uh, ironic. Yeah, right. It, 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 it kind of is. It kind of is. Uh, and I used to make fun of on Next Generation how many times, you know, it's like they find themselves in, in the cave. So, OK, before we start, let's take care of some quick housekeeping um, here. Uh, uh, I want to first or, of all. Or a quick shout out. You're going to shout out? That's a housekeeper. Oh, yeah. The housekeeper. Remember in the original Dune? Right. <laughs> oh, who, right. Who is she? 
the housekeeper. That was Linda Hunt. And then she was gone. But and I, I that was the one thing I thought in Denny Villeneuve's thing. I said, okay, this character is going to get a lot more love than it did in David Lynch's, you know, you know, but she's barely in it before she gets killed. Spoiler alert. Well, I think it was exactly <laughs> the same in Denny Villeneuve's movie. It's like they make a big point of um, you know, her being picked as the housekeeper from all the, you know, the, we get the job interview and everything. Right. And right. then she and she's picked. And it's then, a 30 minute scene. She provides her references. Yeah. Like there's there's like an there's a translator. It's and then she's and then she's dead. And then she's gone. Just like anyway, that. Anyway, that takes care of the housekeeping. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> did did um did you guys both see Doom? Yeah, no. actually. Um, I, you know what? I'm going to go on record and say I liked it. I think that my ultimate opinion on it is going to depend on what a what a part two looks like and how it all feels together. Um, I do think that it it owes. It's unquestionable to me that it owes an enormous debt to the David Lynch movie. I, there are so many choices in that film, but I don't think that you would have arrived at without the David Lynch film. It owes a water debt. It does. <laughs> <laughs> um, even the Hans Zimmer score, frankly, which I think is great, but like you don't, I don't think you get there without Toto and Brian Eno. I don't think that you're motivated to to do that without Toto and Brian Eno. I can't, um, I can't go there about the score. I, that, I thought that was the worst part of the film for me. Interesting. Like what, I, I will say, I like the film, Darren. I liked it, but it did make me appreciate the Lynch version even more. Right. But in fairness, you love the Lynch version. You can quote the Lynch no, version. No, I, I can quote it. Yeah. But right. it's also batshit crazy. Oh, it is. Totally. But we have this affection. I certainly have an affection for yeah. it. I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought that the, the Zimmer score, which has gotten so much um, notice, I thought was merely fine. Like, it was like there were things that I thought oh, were really cool, but I thought fine. that like- I just- I just wondered why the Fremen have Wonder Woman's theme song. <laughs> I mean, you know what? You know what? If Wonder Woman is a Fremen, I'm in. Yeah, Wonder Fremen. But she's not. I'm there. Well, she should be. I, I, uh, I, I, it's very interesting to hear you because, I mean, there, there, there seems to be so much love out there. And it's funny because um, I feel, I think, the same way you guys do. Like, I, I, I admired it. I, I enjoyed it. But there's something about the David Lynch movie that's so out there for all its flaws that kept it really interesting. And, you know, I love that first scene when the, the, the Guild Navigator comes out and meets Jose Ferrer. And like, yeah. that is just so cool. And it this is. didn't have anything like that. Um, I, I do have to say, for those who are interested in learning more about it, on YouTube, there is a, a fan cut of all the available footage from all the versions of the Lynch movie. Ooh. And it's really good. Oh, really? I'll have it's to watch really that. good. And you can see even more of the scenes that were lifted directly whole cloth and put in the Villeneuve. Well, I'll say, I'll say this in, um, in, in Dune's favor, 2021 Dune's, I guess it was 2020 really, but who's, who's counting? Dune 2048. Right. Dune 2048, <laughs> the sequel, the prequel to Dune 2049. Um, which again, I really dug the movie, but what I most appreciated about it is my, my son, Caden, 12 years old, went to see that movie twice. Really? Yes. And he really dug it. And I would, I thought, you know what, if that is his gateway drug into, you know, serious minded science fiction, um, 
and you know these this kind of storytelling with you know with a real with with a real filmmaker's eye behind it i'm all for it and he wants to watch the the david lynch version it's like it just that to me was like was such a pleasure of going to see that movie it was like knowing not, that he not to be it. not to be a one-upsman but okay uh <laughs> my my uh, my son jared uh, i showed the lynch version to him when he was 12 and he and shot he you. he loved it and he said i want to find out more about this and i said it happens to be a book so here's the book enjoy it two days later he could quote from the book god bless him that's oh. awesome it was unfreaking believable and you know what one of the greatest parts of my life that's terrific i love that i need to give kate and dune i didn't see what the, i mean i'm sure it'd be like two years later he'll read it but like but uh, you know what that's inspiring i love that Wow. Oh, I forgot to tell you because uh, <laughs> my, my 12 year old uh, has no interest in seeing Dune, but uh, uh, just finished um, Terminator, Terminator 2 and Robocop this weekend. God and bless him. Boy, the real he, Robocop, not the boy, bullshit he, Robocop. He loved those movies. Oh, of my God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. But Dude, I, I would not have had the stomach for Robocop at 12. No uh, way. I, I was reluctant to show it to him and I did show him the theatrical version. He has. Well, oh, this director's cut. We should watch that. I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't have, I don't have it. I don't have it. And I watched the theat. I we watched the theatrical cut. Mm. Um, I love and- Paul Verhoeven, Dad. Do you have Black Book? Like, yeah, but he does want to watch Starship <laughs> Troopers now. But but I, I we watched the theatrical. He he loved it. He loved it. He got, he, he thought it was great. Um, and and it's good because now um, he finally wants wants to watch Die Hard because they mentioned it in, in Brooklyn Nine Nine. So. Okay. Well, I'm grateful to Brooklyn Nine-Nine for whatever that is. Well, you should give it to him for Christmas because it's a Christmas movie. Well, we are going to watch it for Christmas. And boy, it's going to piss off Steve Melching. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but wrong podcast. Oh, no. for that. Okay. Wrong podcast. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, I, I you know, I think uh, we're, we're going to talk more about Dune, uh, both uh, David Lynch and the uh, Danny Villeneuve on our um, holiday Trek's holiday Trek's. edition. I know a lot of you were wondering what uh, our big three-part supersized special would be this year. It's going to turn out to be um, six parts, given our usual seven, mathematics. Seven and a half hour uh, <laughs> odyssey. <laughs> you know, you can we, drive across country listening. To- we began <laughs> this tradition with the 101 greatest Star Trek episodes of all time. We continued it with the 101 greatest Star Trek moments of all time. Last year, we topped ourselves with 101 greatest sci-fi episodes of all time. And this year we're excited to announce that Ashley, Rob Burnett, Darren, and myself will be recording and releasing to you as our holiday gift to the world. Um, the 101 greatest sci-fi movies of all time. And then next year is the 101 greatest Dalmatians of all time. And I have to say, it'll be interesting to see if Star Trek three, the search for Spock makes the cut. The only way to find out, is to listen to all 44 hours. Uh, <laughs> well, but, but by the way, before we move on, I think we all want to send our good wishes and congratulations to Nick Meyer on the engagement of his daughter to Kristen Stewart. That's exciting stuff. And Absolutely. we hope we wish them much happiness and uh, long, uh, long life and, and pro- Peace prosperity. And long life. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's that's congratulations to Nick, along with the uh, release of his new book, uh, his new Sherlock Holmes book, which I'm sure will be uh, terrific. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading it because his last one was wonderful. So, okay, And hopefully now, hopefully we'll read it before he comes on the show again. (laughs) Right. 
<laughs> well, oh, you can count on that. Yeah, we won't. Mac- I don't. I don't know that. Like, we could pull that out of our ass again. And yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, well, so, look, you know, we 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 so so let's uh, let's get ready, let's get serious because it's time for Bible study, and uh, <laughs> we are going to be looking at the uh, original Star Trek uh, uh, writers and directors guide. This was actually published. This is the third revision, April 17th, 1967. So it was deep into the filming of um, this, the first season. It was um, right before uh, the hiatus for uh, where second season. And it starts uh, like Rafe Needleman wrote it with a question. A question. But wait, before we, before we go there, there's something that I kind of have to say as a technical point. Now, I know that we've been referring to these as Bible studies, and I know that we've been referring to these documents that we've been reading as Bibles. But the truth of the matter is, and I think we'll find this out as we go through this document, that the format of it, which is, which is very interesting and very different and very strange, it's very question and answer, it's, it's, a, it's a summation. I think it's more accurate to say that this isn't so much a Bible as a catechism. Um, <laughs> And uh, I, look, I'm all for like and a case of voyage or a cataclysm, a cataclysm. Exactly. Like, like a little catechism study. I, I think if we're going to be technical and I think it's important in Star Trek to be technical, that, that we're we're looking at the catechism of Star Trek. I'm just I'm just putting that out there. All right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that you know out, what? Ashley Miller. OK, I'm all about the scientific accuracy. And someone needs to be. So um, it opens up uh, with a quiz. A quiz. That's what I'm saying. That's what I mean. Ray Needleman, man. What did Jesus mean when he said, okay. (laughs) And in in Judaism, it's like Passover. Why do we recline? I don't know. Let me go forward and let me read this question (laughs) that is is on here. Um, It says, can you find the major Star Trek format error in the following teaser from a story outline? Let's quickly go through that. Well, can you, punk? I can. <laughs> the scene is the bridge of the USS United States Spaceship Enterprise. Captain Kirk is at the command position. His lovely but highly efficient female yeoman at his side, as if she could be lovely and not highly efficient. Hmm. Right. Uh, suddenly, and without provocation, our starship is attacked by an alien space vessel. We try to warn the alien vessel off, but it ignores us and begins loosening bolts of photon energy plasma at us. Those bastards. Now the alien vessel's attack begins to weaken our deflectors. Mr. Spock reports to Captain Kirk that the next enemy bolt will probably break through and destroy the Enterprise. At this moment, we look up to see the final energy plasma bolt heading for us. There may be only four or five seconds of life left. Kirk puts his arms around his lovely yeoman, comforting and embracing her as they wait for what seems certain death. <laughs> it it seemed out. the proper way. That <laughs> <laughs> it is. So now we're supposed to check one of these. Uh, is the answer uh, number one, inaccurate terminology? Uh, the Enterprise is more correctly an international vessel, the United Spaceship Enterprise. Oh, that. Mm-hmm. Scientifically incorrect. That's number two. Energy plasma bolts could not be photon in nature. <laughs> photon wave nature. Man. Number Good. three. Unbelievable. The captain would not hug pretty yeoman on the bridge of his vessel. Oh, I don't know if that's fucking unbelievable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or number four. Concept weak. 
this whole story opening reeks too much of space pirate or similar bad science fiction. The hell is wrong with space pirates? Now, before we answer that question, next week on the Trex Press. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is wrong with space pirates? Um, before we answer that question, I just want to say I have never in the history of uh, of television read a uh, a quiz had a quiz book. A show by will be, you know, uh, I love it. It just goes to show how Gonzo, I, you know, and I have to say, I wonder again if this was Gene Kuhn. Because, you know, Roddenberry was kind of out of the picture at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, It certainly has his um, sense of humor. His puckishness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He likes to to poke the bear. He does. And this kind of does it. Poking the bear. (laughs) (laughs) The bear is being poked. Why is that bear smiling? Gene Kuhn is well. There are people at home who are like, Shut up. We just want to know the answer. <laughs> you know, so, what? Uh, let's 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 indulge them. Um, indulge them. Indulge yourself, Mr. Sulu. Um, no, we're not joking. The preceding page was a very re- was very real uh, typo. The, the preceding page was a very real and important test of your approach to science fiction. Here's why. Tell them why, Ashley. Well, if you said inaccurate terminology, you're wrong. I mean, sure, United States spaceship was, in fact, incorrect, but it's easily fixed. They do want directors, writers, actors, and others to use proper terminology, but uh, that is far from being the biggest screw-up in Star Trek format error. If you said, go ahead. If you said scientifically inaccurate, wrong again. Beware if you Uh this one. Although we do want to be scientifically accurate. We found that the selection of this item usually indicates a preoccupation with science and gadgetry over people and story. Why does I feel like a shot at another gene? Okay, but we're not done yet. Is it because the concept is weak? Wrong again. This one's for you, Fred Freiberger. Wrong again, Batman. (laughs) (laughs) It is, in fact, much like the opening of one of our best episodes. Of last year, aliens. Oh my god! Have they done aliens on Star Trek? How awesome is that? (laughs) Sigourney Weaver in Star Trek. Enemy vessels, sudden attack, and such things can range from Buck Rogers to classical literature, all depending on how it's handled. Witness H.G. Wells's novels, Forrester's sea stories, and so on. Which brings us, Darren, to. Understanding the right answer to this is basic to understanding the Star Trek format. This was the correct answer. That's the equation. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Why the correct answer? Simply because we've learned during a full season of making visual science fiction that believability of characters, their actions and reactions is our greatest need and is the most important angle factor. Let's explore that briefly okay. on the next page. Can I, you- I, I, I want to stop for yes. a second. As much stop. as we're joking about this whole. It's it, absolutely with, right. It's 100% this, right. And this one, this simple paragraph this simple is the feeling. key to this, understanding Star Trek. This simple feeling is beyond most offended. Um, in fact, I would argue that this paragraph is the proof of your thesis, sir that this is something that came from the pen of Gene Kuhn versus Gene Roddenberry. 
Well, let's not see, that Gene doesn't care about characters. Not well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're two different genes. But not that Gene Roddenberry doesn't care about characters. But I feel, but but the emphasis on it, right? Saying that like this is the thing that we care most about, feels like a thing that Gene Kuhn would say. Yeah. Uh, very it may very well be, but I will tell you, again, this paragraph, this 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 paragraph should be on the wall of oh. every producer of Star Trek fair from now to time immemorial. Especially now. More, now more than loud. ever. <laughs> now more than ever. Simply because we've learned during a full season, I'm repeating, full. of making visual science fiction, that believability of characters, their actions and reactions is our greatest need and is the most important angle factor. Let's explore that. Character together. is our business. That's what this show is about. Now, let's let's try this again. The same basic story situation, but against another background. The time is today. We're in Vietnam waters aboard the Navy cruiser USS Detroit. Suddenly, an enemy gunboat heads for us. Our guns are unable to stop it, and we realize it's a suicide attack with an atomic warhead. Total destruction of our vessel and of all aboard appears probable. Would Captain E.L. Henderson, presently commanding the USS Detroit, turn and hug a comely female wave who happened to be on the ship's bridge? He might, Rabbit. He well, might. no, but, but Captain Roddenberry would. Yeah, damn right he would. Um, great Except, point. Well, uh, first of all, if the Viet Cong had an atomic warhead, they wouldn't put uh, on a boat to take out the no, USS okay, Detroit. Be, uh, but you know what? Let's, again, let's put the silliness aside. Right. Has he just... Uh, uh, set up uh, an interesting scenario which has tension and suspense and um and 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 is compelling television i think so he, he has however but I... however the way the captain acts is not the way a captain would act right exactly as right. simple as that exactly. it, they continue this is our standard test that has led to star trek believability it also suggests much of what has been wrong in film sci-fi of the past and the no, future. No, Captain Henderson wouldn't. Not if he's the kind of captain we hope he is commanding any naval vessel of ours. Nor would our Captain Kirk hug a female crewman in a moment of danger. Not if he's to remain believable. Some might prefer Henderson were somewhere making love rather than shelling Asiatic ports, but that's a whole different story for a whole different network, probably BBC. Gene Coon! Gene Coon! <laughs> Really a great look. This is so this is all so important because we're not just talking, you know, in this it's the 60s. We're talking about hugging a female crew member saying this would be totally wrong and out of character and 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 hurt believability. But, you know, what if we put it in the future? Hugging a crewman on the, on on the, the bridge for any reason. Totally inappropriate. You no, know, it's inappropriate. Hugging on the bridge. There's no hugging on the bridge. There's no crying at baseball. There's no hugging on the bridge. And so in every scene of our Star Trek story, translate it into a real life situation or sometimes as useful. Try it in your mind as a scene in Gunsmoke, Naked City or some similar show. Would you believe the people and the scene if it happened there? If you're one of those who answers the character acts that way because it's science fiction, don't call us. We'll call you.
eventually. Never. And that means they won't call him. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Look, that's no a great te- That's a great teaser for the Bible. Absolutely. I loved I loved the way they opened with that. This is a scene. Is it good? Is it bad? Why is that? Yeah. And this is why it's not our show. Tell him. Fantastic. It's great. And because now we go right into the first act of the Bible, right. the Star Trek format. It explains to us who our characters are. A captain, Jim Kirk, a first officer, Mr. Spock. And I love the way he describes this next set of characters. A right. group of regulars who make up our television family. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Dr. McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, Sulu, Nurse, Christine, Not and others as detailed later. Well, because remember, this is still the end of the first season. That's Guest true. stars, if the story demands it, but with a story which also emphasizes our series leads right. on a giant starship, a familiar television home base, the USS Enterprise, on a patrol of a section of our galaxy, our vessel representing Earth and the Federation, assisting colonists, aiding in scientific exploration, putting down conflicts, helping those in distress, regulating trade, engaging in diplomatic missions, and so on. Here's another thing about this. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we did the Bible for the cage? Yeah, forgot which it was, entirely. Which was, well, which was interesting, which yeah. was a, you know, interesting Bible. And we had a lot to say about it. And it really helped, you know, provide the building blocks for what would become Star Trek. Look how much they've improved on that already mm-hmm. with yeah. this Bible. Yeah, it's at laser point, focused. It is. But at this point, they've had a year of experience making this show yeah. and figuring out exactly what the show is. And this document has has a has a has a very practical purpose beyond the purpose that most Bibles have. It's why I think like it's it's probably best described as a catechism, because it is described as the writer director's guide, right? And I, I believe that the function of this document was to help the many freelancers uh, and the directors who come onto the show understand the show they're making. In essence, they're toning everybody, as we like yeah. to say in the business. They're saying this is what the show is. This is the things that you need to know and you need to understand in order to succeed in being a collaborator. And if you uh, in our can't go endeavor, along with it, then, then we probably can't use you. That's right. definitely came from one of the solar systems in this sector, Captain. Can you pinpoint it any closer, Lieutenant? Negative. It was so badly garbled, all we got was the name Constellation. Then we lost it. Sir? We're now within the limits of system L370, but I can't seem to locate... Captain, sensors show this entire solar system has been destroyed. Nothing left but rubble and asteroids. That's incredible. The star in this system is still intact. Only a Nova could destroy like that. Nonetheless, Captain, sensors show nothing but debris where we charted seven planets last year. Continue your search pattern. Aye, aye, sir. Entering limits of system L-374, sir. Scanners show the same evidence of destruction. Every solar system in the sector blasted to rubble. It's 
Still no sign of the constellation. Matt Decker's in command. What could have happened to him? Captain, the two innermost planets of this system appear to be intact. Sir, I'm picking up a ship's disaster beacon. Try to raise it, Lieutenant. Have it on the sensors, Captain. By configuration, a starship. Stopped in space, she appears to be drifting. No answer, Captain. All I get is the automatic beacon. Sensor is not recording normal energy output. Approach course, Mr. Sillow. It's the constellation. been wrecked by whatever destroyed these solar systems. She was attacked. Red alert. Red alert. Man your battle stations. But here's the other thing to, 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 to know. You know, if you're writing a Bible at that point, and, and for those who don't know, that, who, whose mind is in the gutter, Naked City was a, a cop show. Yeah, I hope uh, you hug Yeoman the, on the, the, Naked the, the City. Naked, the Naked City is a reference to, you know, an urban center, okay? Right. Um, so if you're writing a cop show like Naked City, if you're writing a Western like Gunsmoke, you know, there is a template for um, what a show like that is. Star Trek, like Vina, there was no blueprint for putting it together. They were inventing this from scratch. That is what is so incredible at this point, that there is this fundamental understanding of exactly how to do the show. But after I, I think I think that statement of they were inventing it from scratch is not accurate because, as you can see, they were inventing it from previous forms of TV drama. And Fair enough. taking those, you know, taking those uh, formats and converting them into this Star Trek format, which, even though it takes place in the future, could very well play on uh, on board a Navy ship in Vietnam. Yes, but even if you're taking from column A and column B and you're putting together, you know, you still, it, it's not a dish that's on the menu. You're right. creating your own new dish. You are synthesizing right. a new you thing know, from... In the Chinese fire. restaurant, you order the poo-poo platter, right? But it comes with the shrimp toast yes. and spare ribs and everything. But whatever you create from it, is is new right it's not the poo poo platter you're taking the different ingredients you, and making your own thing you keep saying poo poo well, um, but, but okay. I mean, look like again like that that bible was here's what we think it's going to be this document is here is what it has in fact become and what it must be so darren if you will let's uh, find out um uh, the, the the key to the star trek format Yes, the Star Trek format is actually that simple. If you're a TV professional, you already know the following seven rules. Theoretically. Rule one, build your episode on an action-adventure framework. We must reach out, hold, and entertain a mass audience of some 20 million people, or we simply don't stay on the air. Can we stop for a minute? Yeah. Can we stop? I know. (laughs) 20 million people. People, or we don't stay on the... Can you imagine any show, any show, getting 20 million people in today's market? Not I mean, now. No. Oh, my God. 20 
million people. That's just such an enormous number today. So I just had to flag that because that's almost unbelievable science fiction to me. But of course, it's what it was. We'll Well, change the name to Squid Trek. That's also also a great guide as to why it had to be good or it had to be entertaining and quality at that time because Mm -hmm. they were fighting to stay on the air. Right. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't engaging in niche craft. They weren't like, Hey, we've got like a bunch of fans. We got like, like three guys who are like watching it every time, like a new bunch of episodes drops. Like, it's like, no, you got to hit 20 guys up there. So so Darren, you just told us number one, the action adventure framework. Tell us what number two is. Number two, tell your story. Number two is the poo-poo platter. Number two, <laughs> tell your story about people, not about science and gadgetry. Joe Fry didn't stop to explain the mechanics of his 38 caliber before he uses it. Kildare never did a monologue about the theory of anesthetics. Matt well, Dillon, I'd like to have heard that. <laughs> I would have seen both of those scenes. Matt Dillon never identifies and discusses the breed of his horse before he rides off on it. <laughs> it's very Cormac McCarthy if he did. <laughs> That's really that funny. Love that's, that. that's streaming today. Streaming. Yeah. Matt Dillon would talk about his horse for and 40 minutes. Of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. We're just taking a little break this episode. Yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> n- number three, Darren. Number three, keep in mind that science fiction is not a separate field of literature with rules of its own, but indeed needs the same ingredients as any story, including a jeopardy of some type to someone we learn to care about. Climactic build, sound motivation, you know the list. For crying out loud. Number four, then with that firm foundation established, interweave it in an, any statement to be made about man, society, and so on. Yes, we want you to have something to say, but say it entertainingly as you do on any other show. We don't need essays, however brilliant. Let that be your last battlefield cough. Let that be your last <laughs> <Yeah>. battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, boy, but what they do need a proofreader, but okay. okay. Well, you know, uh, uh, Darren, if you'll continue number five, I, I will. Number five. Remember always that Star Trek is never fantasy. Whatever happens, no matter how unusual or bizarre must have some basis in either fact or theory and stay true to that premise. Don't give the enemy starflight capability and then have them engage our vessel with grappling hooks and drawn swords. Unless you establish establish that personal shields are a method of fighting. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, look, and again, something else Fred Freiberg violated. Yeah. With Day of the Dove, and yeah, that's right. That's exactly the example I was about to use. But you know what? I kind of read this soft spot. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Let's do that. Number six. Don't try to don't try to tell a story about whole civilizations. Uh, We've Mm. never yet been able to get a usable story from a writer who began. I see the strange civilization which dot dot dot. The Yangs and focus. Focus. Sorry. Number seven. Stop worrying about not being a scientist. How many cowboys, police officers, and doctors wrote Westerns, detective, and hospital shows? Huh? Tell me that. That's a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, I I mean, I think if, you know, and and lawyers who write legal shows. 
But you know yeah. what? There are lawyers who write legal shows and, and they cops do well. who write cop shows. I, I think it gives them an advantage. It does. Look, and, or, or what happens when you have a cop write a sci-fi show like Burton Armis? Or, a, or Gene yeah. Roddenberry. Roddenberry. Wow, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> or Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, well, those are all really great points. And um, and we all enjoyed them very, very much. We, we, we did. And I think... Um, I, I think that it's 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 it really gets to the bottom of, you know, it helps really distill what the formula of Star Trek is and isn't. And um, they, they do it, you know, uh, I mean, this, this to me is is perhaps the best Bible we've read so far. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, this yeah. is this is great guides for writing drama and television anyway. Well, no that's why so right. much of it. That's why so much of it is excerpted in the making of star trek right by uh stephen whitfield nee poe and, and gene ronberry and uh we you know for anyone who is an aspiring writer who hasn't read the making of star trek they mu- so simply good. must do that and also david gerald's the making of trouble with tribbles which is also yep. a pretty terrific book absolutely yeah okay so now um they break down the format of uh of the show um the teaser and the axe obviously the teaser uh you know certainly in that era we op- well, in any era, but uh, this was something that was kind of lost uh, later on. Um, but we open with action, always establishing a strong Jeopardy need or other hook. It is not necessary to establish all the backstory in the teaser. Instead, we tantalize the audience with the promise of excitement to come. For example, it can be as simple as everyone tense on the bridge, hunting down a marauding enemy ship. Then a telltale blip is sighted on the screen and the captain orders all hands to battle stations. Fade out. That's enough. Yeah, I mean, this has sort of changed as commercials have gone away, you know, um, or became more prevalent. Star Trek, brought to you by Polaroid, makers of the 1967 economy model of the Polaroid color pack camera, and by Viceroy for the taste that's right, right any time of the day. Well, but I mean, I think if you, you know, even on Next Generation, you know, there's very soft teasers. For the oh, yeah, part. for sure. Like that, that whole philosophy definitely changed. I'll tell you something else that changed. That's like that's a little bit deeper on this page is first drafts can run up to 70 pages. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> absolutely. No more than 65. Now, look, that's partly, I think, a function of the fact that at the time, you know, the episodes could run much longer. I mean, like 50, now we're four place- minutes. Right. And now, you know, network is like is 42. So that makes sense. But what's what I actually find honestly fascinating about that page count is that this was an era where you weren't editing on an avid, you know, you were like, you were editing film. So the pace, like there was no, almost nothing you could do for pace. You look at the way that a lot of Star Trek was shot and so much of it was basically a wonder. <laughs> you know, it's like, you got your master and your two pops and that's it, man. And the fact that like, they could take scripts that were this long, which really, I think, give you the opportunity to, to fully flesh out a story, like more so than, you know, than I think, like, I think it's a little more difficult today. But the fact that they could do that, I think is pretty fascinating. Well, remember also, they only had four acts mm-hmm. um, and uh, they were really limited in terms of VFX. A lot of today's sci-fi, you know, you have long sequences, which are, you know, the CGI you know, long CGI uh, things, you know, in the original Star Trek, I mean, you had five seconds here, maybe, you know, a couple, a few seconds there, some stock of the Enterprise, some stock of a planet. I thought Star Trek was all about like a whole bunch of special effects. 
So you had very, a it's lot not? of dialogue driven scenes too. Oh. And, you know, dialogue, you know, very dialogue heavy because here, even in the description of the acts, four acts in length, act one usually begins with the captain's voiceover, Captain Kirk dictating his log, necessary backstory should be laid in here, not in the teaser. The captain's log should be succinct, succinct and crisp in ship's commander log language. Opening act one, we need some form of orbit establishing or other silent shot to give us time for both captain's log and opening credits. We must have a strong ending to act two, something that will keep the audience tuned to our channel. Yep. Again, something you would never find in the Bible today. Never. Even for a network show. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Ashley, tell us about the style. The style. The style. We maintain a fast pace, avoid long philosophical exchanges or tedious explanations of your equipment. Well, and note- they, they should have had that in, in, in the next gen Bible. <laughs> yeah, holy shit, which was nothing but long, tedious explanations of equipment, mainly because Lincoln Enterprises wanted to sell it. And note that our cutting technique, I just was talking about this, is to use the shortest possible time between idea and execution of it. Like, for instance, Kirk decides that a landing party will transport down to the planet. Hard cut. The lights blinking on the transporter console pulled back to reveal the landing party stepping into the transporter. But you know what? Like today, you know what you do? We're going down to the planet. You would cut to the transporter effect on the planet. You would not like, even like going to the transporter room is shoe leather. Although I appreciate like what they're saying here, right? It's like what's being communicated is there needs to be a sense of urgency in everything that we do. I think in part because you just don't have the time because these stories are so expansive, but also because exactly what they're saying. Right. It's like, you're also trying to maintain just this sense that Star Trek is a show that is on its feet, that at the end of the day, as smart as it is, um, as great with character as it is, it is ultimately an adventure, right? We can't ever lose sight of the adventure of Star Trek. Um, And that is when they're talking about the cutting technique, especially again, this is 1967. Right. Like that's what's being communicated to me when I read this. And any uh, uh, editor will tell you, you know, you come in as late as possible in the scene as you you leave as early. When right. you film the actor walking across the bridge and going into the turbo lift, that's going to get cut. That's you right. You know, it's just like, you know, we, we you know, we need to beam down. And now even now, I think you talk about we wouldn't see the transporter room. We just see them beaming down the planet. I don't even I think, think a lot see of them that, beaming down. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that is also because the. um the world of Star Trek is much more clear mm-hmm. after 50 years. Yeah. So you don't need to see people going to the transporter room and the act of beaming down because back in 67, we no one knew what, that, was. what right. that meant, what that entailed, right? Snotty beam me twice last night. It was fantastic. So, so you need to see them go into the transporter room and that's what sends them down to the surface. Now you don't need to do that because the iconography is very clear. If somebody's beaming down, you know they're, they're, they've been That's transported. Right. In fact, you could probably get away with no beaming whatsoever. We're going down to the planet. Boom, you're on the planet, right? Everybody yeah. would understand that you use the transporter. Yeah, back then it's like, how did they get there? Did they take a shuttlecraft? Well, Mr. Kyle had to push the things. We had to do the insert shot of Mr. Kyle pushing the button. Yeah, and here's where you talk about page count. The 70 70 pages, absolutely no more than 65 pages, please, which is uh, for the final polished draft, which is, I mean, just having to read that alone uh, and rewrite that. Oh, my God. um, and, And it says another, please, cast and set lists with your draft which, of course, now is the job of the, of the script, script coordinator. coordinator. 
and you know, final draft could do it in two seconds. That's but right. I, I mean, they, they deserve more money just for having to do that. That's right. What a pain in the ass. Total pain in the ass. And it's really not the writer's job. So <laughs> well, um it used to be once yeah, by the time. Yeah, I mean, God, it's just like you talk about, look, they were cutting on a moviola, you know, nonlinear editing didn't come until the 90s. And it's just like how that changed the pace of everything. But even like the fact that, you know, desktop publishing to go from, you know, the stuff having to be typed and mimeographed, you know, how that changed scripts. I mean, even when you read the scripts, you know, they're what we would now consider, you know, insanely overwritten Mm -hmm. in terms of description. Um. Now, you know, they go into the description of the Enterprise. I don't know if we really need to um, no, this is, this is read just that. To, uh, this, this is all. Just to tell uh, uh, fledgling writers who aren't familiar with the show necessarily what uh, the capabilities of the ship are and their tools yeah. and their toys. Well, I, I, I do, I do want to point this out. Oh, go ahead, Ashley. I was just going to say, I just want to flag the fact that they refer specifically to the salsa section. Right. Which I don't think in the original series, it was ever referred to as the salsa section yet. And they did. When did they refer to it as the salsa section? Did they refer to it with a cool British accent? Uh, no, I think it was the uh, I think it was the uh, apple. And Kirk, okay. Kirk, Kirk was talking about separating the saucer section. That's okay. true. Fair. All right. Great point. Great there point. is a lot of description. Again, this is when it was novel and there were no Star Trek blueprints or anything True. where they described the engineering section to which the two engine nacelles are attached is equally large and complex. It contains a, a rear a hangar bay, just large enough to hangar a whole fleet of today's jetliners. <laughs> Turbo elevators, which can run both vertically and horizontally, interconnect every deck and compartment of this huge vessel. Or just ah. twirl around themselves for no damn good reason. Like the the point that, uh, that why I'm reading this is to show the immense imagination on display right. in this Bible. Um, and it says, included in addition to our bridge, Shik Bay, Captain's Cabin, other familiar, familiar standing sets are the widest possible variety of labs, technical departments, computer rooms, storage facilities, passenger accommodations, and cargo facilities. And then it gets into the crew. And again, we're not going to go into all this, although this part is interesting because, again, we talk about how Star Trek was ahead of the curve in terms of diversity. And while you may not like the language they use, it, it, again, it shows how important diversity was to Gene and Gene and, and the creators of the show. International in origin, completely multiracial. Okay, this is in the Bible for the show. But even in the future century, we will see some traditional trappings. Ornaments and styles that suggest the Asiatic, the Arabic, the Latin, etc. So far, Mr. Spock has been our only crewman with bloodlines from another planet. However, it is not impossible that we might discover some other aliens or part aliens working aboard our starship. Again, it is celebrating diversity. And it's saying that, um, you know, different ethnicities retain what makes their culture unique. This is a very important paragraph in 1967. And okay, so um, you know this is, now. This is something worth mentioning because, of course, this was largely dropped. Uh, I mean, I know in Charlie X they work out and stuff, but Charlie's our darling. But it says we like ways of using the crewmen, extras as well as actors, to help suggest the enormous diversity of our vessel. For example, playing a scene in leisure attire as our people pass in sports gear, obviously going to or from like a gymnasium or something. playing Parisian squares. Life aboard the Enterprise, believably again, as in present day naval cruiser, is not all hard work and stern devotion to duty. Right. Which right. is also another important thing because a lot of the Star Trek 
post next generation really you know are mostly on duty there's not a lot of recreational stuff honestly the, the only holodeck. the only record exactly yes that's the only recreation we see and look the thing is i mean and i think you know any anyone who has worked in this business and like tried to to write an episode of anything knows that like as much as you want to talk about scenes where characters do nothing unless you're writing seinfeld the reality is you those are the first things you cut because your stories have to move forward and you know yes like i guess like there's a version of you know setting things setting scenes in the context where you're two camels like as it were uh, is, you know, some leisure activity happening in the background. The reality is like, number one, like you want things to happen on their feet. Number two, the reality of production is you want to tell your story with as few sets as you possibly can. So when you start like taking things and consolidating them down into a place where you can make your days and you can get everything shot, right? The first thing that's going to go is the scene that's set off in some squirrely location where people are doing things you don't necessarily need to do because that's another costume change. Those are other props. That's another set. That's all this other stuff that if you don't have to do it, it means that everything else can be just a little bit better, right? So even that, I think, is still just, a, it's an echo of some aspirational things you would find in a Bible versus the, the reality that we tend to see reflected in this document. Yeah. And, and then the document goes on to talk about the ship's power and what warp speed is, uh, which is great. This is all great cliff note stuff explaining how this stuff works. There's a nice description of um, warp, uh, warp factors, you know, which is important for the writer to understand what that is. Then it gets into the ship's weaponry and explains the difference between phasers and photon torpedoes. Although for those of you who enjoyed our enterprise episode, where we talked about the importance of a helmsman who can say phaser fire correctly. Um, there is a, um, uh, a description, the helmsman, Mr. Sulu acts as weapons officer under the captain's direction. He coordinates the fire from the phaser rooms using the vessels, navigational aids to lock the phasers on target and on the captain's order, engaging the circuits which fire these weapons, which is good too, because, you know, it was weird because after balance of terror, you really wondered what happened to the phaser control room. It seemed like you didn't really need that. You just operated it from the helm, but you know, this is saying that no, they're, they're you, you know, it's operated from phaser rooms, well, but it's controlled by the bridge. Obviously with the level of uh, competence that uh, they had crewed the phaser control room in before uh, they replaced it. Well, plus there's the, there is the, the storytelling reality, right? In Balance of Terror, it was interesting, okay? Because Balance of Terror is essentially a submarine movie. Your phaser control room is basically your torpedo control, right? Like, you don't just push a button and off the torpedoes go. Right. There are people who are down there who are loading those things. Like, they're setting up the ordnance. They're the ones who are doing the firing. And I think well, that- Especially the, when they make the story more interesting. That's right. But when you just need to fire the goddamn phasers, the you last thing the you button. need to do, yeah, you press the button, man. You just press the button. Yeah. Well, now it goes into a description of our characters. So this will be interesting to see how much they got right and how much changed. They definitely um, got William Shatner, right? They did. Yes. Captain's log, supplemental. Now motionless for nine hours, 47 minutes. I get you something from the galley, sir. 
coffee at least? Thank you, Yola. Bring it to the bridge. I'll be there in a moment. I wish I were in a long sea voyage somewhere. Not too much deck tennis, no frantic dancing, and no responsibility. Why me? I look around that bridge. I see the men waiting for me to make the next move. And Bones? What if I'm wrong? No. I don't really expect an answer. But I've got one. Something I seldom say to a customer, Jim. In this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of three million Earth-type planets. And in all of the universe, three million million galaxies like this. And in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. So, uh, Darren, if you will, read us the Bible's description of Captain James T. Kirk. Uh, I think uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry is going to tell us about James T. Kirk. Oh, I'm so glad that Gene would join us for this. Uh, I know he was busy doing his Tarzan series at the time, but it's great that he uh, is willing to take the time to be with us now. This is Captain James T. Kirk, played by William Shatner. Kirk is about 34, an Academy graduate, rank of Starship Captain. A shorthand sketch of him might be a space-age Captain Horatio Hornblower. Constantly on trial with himself, a strong, complex personality. With the starship out of communication with Earth and Starfleet bases for long periods of time, a starship captain has unusually broad powers over both the lives and welfare of his crew, as well as over Earth people and activities encountered during these voyages. He also has broad power as an Earth ambassador to alien societies. In his galaxy sector or on new worlds he may discover, Kirk feels these responsibilities strongly and is fully capable of letting the worry and frustration lead him into error. He is also capable of fatigue and inclined to push himself beyond human limits, then condemn himself because he is not superhuman. The crew respects him, some almost to the point of adoration. At the same time, no senior officer aboard is fearful of using his own intelligence in questioning Kirk's orders and can sometimes uh, themselves be strongly articulate up to the point where Kirk signifies his decision has been made. Important, although Kirk will not often solicit information and estimates from Spock, never does the first officer act as Kirk's brain. Our captain is a veteran of, brain? of planet landings and space emergency. He has a broad and highly mature perspective on command, fellow crewmen, and even on alien life customs, however strange or repugnant they seem when measured against Earth standards. On the other hand, don't play Kirk like the captain of an 1812 frigate in which nothing or no one moves without his command. 
Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Sulu, and Uhura are a trained team and are well able to anticipate information and action Kirk needs. Aboard ship, Captain Kirk has only a few opportunities for anything approaching friendship. One exception is Mr. Spock, a strange friendship based upon logic, high mutual respect, and Spock's strong Vulcan loyalty to a commander. Another is with ship surgeon Dr. McCoy, who has a legitimate professional need to constantly be aware of the state of the captain's mind and emotions. But on a shore leave, away from the confines of self-imposed discipline, Jim Kirk is likely to play pretty hard, almost compulsively so. It's not impossible he will let this drag him at one time or another into an unwise romantic liaison, which he will have great difficulty disentangling. He is, in short, a strong man forced by the requirements of his ship and career into the often lonely role of command, even lonelier because Starship Command is the most difficult and demanding task of his century. Wow, they got that right, didn't they? They did. Sure did. It's almost as though they were watching the show. <laughs> well, and, and what a dynamic, you know, and, and I compare that to the description of some of the other characters and some of the other shows we read. There's a depth and a complexity uh, that, that I think is lacking in a lot of the other characters. Like Jackson Archer. <laughs> like Jackson Archer, sure. Um, I mean, this is really, it's all there on the page, isn't it? Well, and to be fair, they've been doing this for a year. So yes, exactly. It isn't there on the page after going through all those episodes, which uh, sort of uh, uh, solidified the Kirk character. Um, How many episodes was it, like 26 in the first season? Yeah. Which would make it the longest running show on Netflix? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, you know, Mr. Spock, there's a lot in the beginning of this where they just talk about how he interfaces with his the computer and the mic, the, the you know, and, and being the science officer. We're going to skip all that because there's nothing particularly interesting about that. But when they start to describe him, uh, uh, they start with Mr. Spock's mother was human. Spock, serial number S179-276SP, service rank, lieutenant commander, position, First officer, science officer, current assignment, USS Enterprise, commendations, Vulcanian Scientific Legion of Honor, awards of valor, twice decorated by Starfleet Command. Mr. Spock, as a first officer, you know a great deal about computers, don't you? I know all about them. It is possible for a computer to malfunction, is it not? Affirmative. Do you know of any malfunction which has caused an inaccuracy in the Enterprise computer? Negative. That answer is based on your mechanical survey of the Enterprise computer, ordered by the defendant prior to this trial, is it not? Affirmative. Now, the star but the date... the computer is inaccurate, nevertheless. Why do you say that? It reports that the jettison button was pressed before the red alert. In other words, it reports that Captain Kirk was reacting to an extreme emergency that did not then exist. And that is impossible. Is it? Were you watching him the exact moment he pressed the jettison button? No, I was occupied. The ship was already on yellow alert. Then how can you dispute the finding of the log? I do not dispute it. I merely state that it is wrong. Oh? On what do you base that statement? I know the captain. He is in... Please instruct the witness not to speculate. Lieutenant, I am half Vulcanian. Vulcanians do not speculate. I speak from pure logic. 
If I let go of a hammer on a planet that has a positive gravity, I need not see it fall to know that it has, in fact, fallen. I do not see what that is. Gentlemen, human beings have characteristics, just as inanimate objects do. It is impossible for Captain Kirk to act out of panic or malice. It is not his nature. In your opinion? Yes. In my opinion. Thank you. Your witness, Mr. Cogman. So, Gene, if you could uh, take us through that. Well, as you mentioned, Mr. Spock's mother was human. His father is a native of the planet Vulcan. This alien-human combination results in Mr. Spock's slightly alien features with the yellowish complexion and satanic pointed ears. Thus, he is biologically, emotionally, and even intellectually a half-breed. He's considerably stronger than his human crewmen. He can endure lack of water and higher temperatures for a longer period. His hearing is particularly keen. He also has a strange Vulcan ESP ability to merge his mind with other intelligence. Read the thoughts there. He dislikes doing so since it deprives him of his proud stoic mannerisms and reveals too much of his inner self. Also, the physical and emotional cost of this is quite high. And uh, we now realize that Spock is capable of feeling emotion, but he denies this at every opportunity. On his own planet, to show emotion is considered the grossest of sins. He makes every effort to hide what he considers the weakness of his half-human heredity. That's a great distillation of the character, don't yeah, you think, guys? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the, the, thing about, the thing about Spock is that um, they, at the beginning, they didn't really know how all this went together. It was a combination of the writers and Nimoy figuring this out, figuring out how his mannerisms were to convey this character. But the reality of television is that to one degree or another, that is, that's always the conversation between the writing and the actor. Yeah. That the, the performance tells the writer things. Like even from like the first set of dailies, you just kind of know. You look and you go like, oh, all right. Like I, I see what this actor is doing that's interesting and I want to write to that. Like, or yep. like, here's this thing that I thought was going to work that doesn't work at all. But here's this other thing that maybe does. And look, sometimes you're right. You know, like sometimes the way that you kind of convey that right, that, that, that character on the page, the actor picks it up the ball and like they run with it. And it's exactly what you hoped it would be. But very often, like you are, you are building something together. That's the collaborative creative process. And I think in the case of Spock, it's particularly pronounced. Yeah. And you know, Ashley, from uh, the many shows you've worked on, you can end an actor that you've booked at the beginning of the season as a 10 out of 10. And as soon as uh, <laughs> as soon as they go before the camera, you're like, well, we're not going to be doing a lot with them. I mean, I've had actors, you know, they've come up and said, oh, you know, uh, I'm getting paid for these episodes. But, you know, because I'm 10 out of 10, but you're not really using me. And uh, it's like, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and, and, and the opposite is true as well. Well, you get somebody's recurring and you want to use them in every episode, you know, maybe even for seven to 10 or whatever. And, or, you know, or you know, seven to 13. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I wish they, you know, yeah. we would put them there because they just they, they find a place on the show. That's exactly right. There are actors who definitely there are actors who are just second, like tertiary, quadrinary, like supporting characters who somehow 
manage to act their way onto the show and you realize they are just insanely useful. And there are actors you think, oh, I'm going to have them. And this has definitely happened to me. Like, I think I'm going to have them in nearly every episode. And then I realize, no, you know what? I'm just not. Yeah. 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 And it sucks because then you, you, you have to pay them because mm-hmm. the, you, you, you booked them for, you know, and then you're not using them. And it's frustrating because you're like, oh, I could use that money for something else. That's right. Like, uh, but uh, so now, uh, Again, they start with a description of Leonard Bones McCoy, uh, knowing what we know about medicine and everything else. But um, there's a great description of the character here, which really goes to the heart of uh, of Bones, which is McCoy is portrayed as something of a future day H.L. Mencken, a very, very outspoken character with more than a little cynical bite in his attitudes and observations on life. He has an acid wit, which results in sometimes shocking statements statements which under close scrutiny carry more than a grain of truth about medicine, man, and society. Of all the men aboard our starship, McCoy is the least military. He is filled with idiosyncrasies which fit the character and are his trademark. For example, he loathes the transporter uh, system of beaming personnel from ship to ship to planet surfaces and loudly proclaims that he does not care to have his molecules scrambled and beamed around as if he were a radio message. McCoy is highly practical in the old general practitioner sense, hates pills, except when they are vitally needed, is not above believing that a little suffering is good for the soul. So I keep and imagining the maturity of the individual. He has a great fear that perfect medicine, psychotherapy, and computers may rob mankind of his individuality Uh-oh. and his divine right to wrestle a bit with life. There's a little He's bit a, of Scientology in there. He is a superb physician and surgeon, often seems to be treating the wrong ailment but usually is proven right in the end. Dr. McCoy is 45 years of age, was married once, something of a mystery that ended unhappily in a divorce. He has a daughter, Joanna, who is 20 and in training as a nurse somewhere. McCoy has provided for her, hears from her as often as intergalactic mail permits, but his duty aboard the starship keeps them apart. We will suspect that it was the bitterness of this marriage and divorce which turned McCoy to the space service. He was born in Georgia and the United States and can be something of the gallant Southern gentleman in social life, particularly with females. When the moment is right, a trace of his Southern accent will be heard. Now, that is so interesting. It was and I weird. It doesn't say was... anything about his divorce leaving him just his bones. That's right. Hello. Yes, sir. What was the problem down there? He insisted we go first, sir. Said something about first seeing how it scrambled our molecules. That's a familiar ring, isn't it? Starfleet, this is Captain Kirk. Beam that officer up now. swore he'd never return to Starfleet. Just a moment, Captain, sir. I'll explain what happened. Your revered Admiral Nagura invoked a little-known, seldom-used reserve activation clause. In simpler language, Captain, they drafted me. They didn't. This was your idea. This was your idea, wasn't it? Bones is a thing out there. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? Headed this way. I need you. Damn it, Bones. I need you. 
Badly. Permission to come aboard? Permission granted, sir. Well, Jim, I hear Chapel's an MD now. Well, I'm going to need a top nurse, not a doctor who'll argue every little diagnosis with me. And they probably redesigned the whole sick bay, too. I know engineers, they love to change things. But what's so interesting is I wonder if this was Dorothy or if this was Gene, because, of course, Joanna was a real personal important to D.C. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, she did write the episode Joanna, well, which quite inexplicably was changed by Fred Freiberger to ultimately become The Way to Eden. Um, but this was a big part of the mythology that um, was never a part of the series. Yeah. Well, I wonder, but, like, maybe, you know, when we're saying, like, this was all Gene, like, maybe this was, as we say in the business, a gangbang, right? Where yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, you just have, like, the, the writers who are closest to this thing, like, parceling out stuff. It's yeah. like Gene is writing the frequently asked questions list. Uh, Gene you, Kuhn, hear, you, hear and, down the, you heard down the hall. Uh, Dorothy, could you uh, pound out a page about Dr. Bones McCoy? yeah sure i can do that your revered admiral nagura invoked a little known seldom used reserve activation but i find it so interesting that this has kind of become part of canon despite Mm -hmm. the fact it was never on screen right i never even alluded to it's just that everyone kind of knows because of that making a star trek book yeah that's right yeah yeah yeah. and then it goes into the 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 um spock mccoy feud um and describes it uh McCoy likes to regard Spock as little more than a sometimes useful piece of computer equipment. But when disagreeing constantly, they do work well together when it becomes necessary. And we're never sure, but what there could be some affection hidden between their constant battles. Like most cynics at heart, he is a bleeding humanist. (laughs) So very interesting. Um, And then of course, go figure other running characters. Sulu, still angry about missing one <laughs> shot that gave him 30 seconds of coverage back in, you know, 1966. And he'll complain down. about it until 2021. Uh, by the way, Mr. Sulu, any chance of teaching me that body throw could come in handy sometime? I don't know, sir. It isn't just physical, you know. You have to be inscrutable. Inscrutable? Sulu, you're the most scrutable man I know. Well, as you say, Sulu is first up, uh, even before Scotty yeah. um, says, uh, describes uh, the character's mixed oriental and a- ancestry, Japanese predominating. Sulu is contemporary American in speech and manner. In fact, his attitude towards Asians is that they seem to be rather inscrutable. Now, as we know, that was a deleted scene, mercifully deleted, yep. uh, where they talk about the inscrutable Asian stereotype. What was, do you remember what that was? I think that was Corbin Manure. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. He's a compulsive hobbyist. One week may be fascinated by botany with the intention of that becoming his lifelong avocation. Then another week will find he has switched to a determination of acquiring a galaxy famous collection of alien firearms. Am I crazy or wasn't he originally supposed to be the botanist? He He was. was He was the botanist. Okay. Yeah. And where no man has done before. So this is the explanation for it. The retcon, as it were. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it, and it's funny, it says, and like all collectors, he is forever giving his friends a thousand reasons why they too 
should take on the same hobby. So Sulu is basically Rob Burnett. <laughs> yeah, with the exception of the interest of firearms, yes, you, you could say action figures. Burnett. What if Sulu collected action figures? That would be fantastic. My goodness. Oh my. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then it goes on to talk about what a great officer he is. Um, and you know, when the chips are down, he immediately becomes another character, a terse professional whose every word deed relates solely to the vessel and its safety. It's, it's, this is a fine description of Sulu and you know, uh, interesting uh, character traits. Then we have engineering officer Scott, um, which he is portrayed by Jimmy Dewan. He's known to most as Scotty and with an accent that drips of Heather and the Highlands. When are you gonna get off that milk diet, lad? This is vodka. Where I come from, that's soda pop. Well, this is a drink for a man. Scotch? Aye. It was invented by a little old lady from Leningrad. Oof. And Canada. And Canada. Oh, <laughs> Canada. But you know, on the other hand, he did get his finger shot off on D-Day. Well, that's true. Darren, I we like would... To, uh... We like to call it doing day. <laughs> Well, and Dewan, of course, was a good friend of, 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 of Gene's. Yep. So, Gene, if you would, can you describe engineering and spaceships are his life? Well, I, I think we're going to have Jimmy Dewan come in and uh, tell us. Engineering and spaceships are his life. <laughs> his idea of a pleasant afternoon is tinkering in any engineering section of the vessel. He's totally unable to understand why any sane man would spend reading time on anything but technical manuals. He's strong-minded, strong-willed, and not incapable of telling off even a Starfleet captain who intrudes into what Scotty regards as his own private province and area of responsibilities. Kirk understands his engineering officer's fierce love of his vessel and his engines, will take more guff off this officer than almost any other aboard the ship. Regarding him, Kirk has one rule. If it doesn't run, take it to Scotty. If he can't fix it, it's irreparable. Fantastic. <laughs> wow. That's great. Okay, well, look, I mean, and, and Scotty, you know, again, one of the most memorable characters of Star Trek. Everyone knows Scotty. Yep. So, you know, uh, Jimmy Dewan's memorable performance, but also a very memorable role, despite not having a lot to do. And in fact, when he was given the, the, the spotlight, not some of Star Trek's best episodes. Well, although, yeah, that's as, true. We, as we've talked about in that completely separate podcast, the Trexpert's Briefing Room, um, when he is uh, left on the ship to command, he does a pretty damn good job. He's he great does. in command. He's great, whether yes. it's wink of an eye. Whether it's um, uh, that which survives, yeah. or or a taste of Armageddon, or um, Friday's Child, yep. he's great when he's in command. Yeah, well, that was the best use of him. Some characters are simply not meant to carry entire stories. I'm looking at you, Doctor Crusher. Like you know, it's the, there, there are characters who are wonderful in support roles, right. and if you put them in the right place in a support role, they're perfect. And as you said, it's like. You know, Scotty was was a perfect like, OK, you know, Spock and Kirk are off the ship. Who are you going to put in charge? Jimmy Dewan. Why not? Right. He was so believable as the military man who was in command of the starship. But when how you, great. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean no, to no, I was going to say it's just like when you put him like you do wolf in the fold and suddenly it's like, uh -huh. how great is he in the apple? 
where he says, yeah. you know, uh, I guess you're going to have to fire me. You're fired. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, Kirk's just total, like, he can't believe that Scotty couldn't figure it out. He just, right. so like, you're fired. It's like, oh God, he's like just beaten down. It, it's really, it's, it's, it's really great. So, I mean, Doohan was such an important part. Scotty was such an important part of the success of that show. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem, as we've talked about in the movies, they turned him into comic relief. Mm-hmm. And Scotty was not that in the show. I mean, had- as much as we, I think, collectively probably appreciate uh, Star Trek V more than any three people in the freaking universe, the truth of the matter is that the, when he walks into the goddamn uh, pipes. You know, pipes, it just, I, I, I think I speak for all of us when I say it makes us crazy. No, it's, it's an embarrassment. It's I mean, an embarrassment. Like, that was that was the Star Trek Four effect. It was just them trying to work in uh, a humor that was not appropriate for that movie. So, um, one of the the you know most memorable but under sort of served characters was Aura. Um, interestingly enough, in the Bible, she does not have the name Neota. Didn't right. become. Uh, it wasn't canon. I think it was created for the novels, actually. Yeah, but, like uh, was it first in the entropy effect? Yeah, right. So, which um, I have like sitting literally on my shelf right now, the very first edition, the Timescape edition of the Entropy. So, but of course, um, her last name was taken from the novel Uhuru, which means freedom, and Gene uh, uh, just sort of uh, feminized the uh, name and gave it to her. And it's a great name. And uh, Uhura was born in the United States of Africa, according to the Bible. Quick and intelligent, she's a highly efficient officer and expert in all ship systems relating to communications. Uhura is also a warm, highly female uh, female off-duty. She is something of a favorite in the recreation room during off-hours, too, because she sings old ballads, ballads as well as the newer space ballads. Like Charlie she, is my darling. And she can do an impersonation at the drop of a communicator. Really? What? Can she do Scotty? <laughs> can she do Gene Roddenberry? That would be great. <laughs> well, I well think yes, she did. Actually, she did. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Oh, Let's delete goodness. that. That was you set us up on for that one. Yeah. Okay. So um, interesting. Not not a ton of information there about her. Yeoman. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and it yeoman. just shows how much Nichelle did with that role. But now we come to an interesting thing, as the, the gentleman just I- indicated, the role of yeoman. Now, obviously, this had originally uh, been uh, Janice Rand, and it was changed. So. We have a large supply of entertainment tapes, gentlemen. Uh, no, we have a tight schedule to make, Captain. Just 20 of us. We're making out fine. Well, this must be a space first. This transport ship that doesn't need anything. Nothing. Not even sorry and brandy? We're fine, thank you. Pleasant journey, Captain. Thank you. Dylan Rand, this is Charles Evans. Show him to his quarters and drop his records off at Dr. McCoy's office, if you will. Yes, sir. Come with me, please. Are you a girl? Is that a girl? That's a girl. Darren, uh, can you read this to us and then let's see if we can unpack it. Well, played by a succession of young actresses, always lovely. Oh, geez. One such character has been well established in the first year, Yeoman Janice Rand, played by the lovely Grace Lee Whitney. 
Whether Yeoman Rand or a new character provided by the writer, this female Yeoman serves Kirk as his combination executive, secretary, valet, military aide. As such, she is always capable, a highly professional career girl. As with all female crewmen aboard during duty hours, she is treated co-equal with males of the same rank, and the same level of efficient performance is expected. The yeoman often carries a small over-the-shoulder case, a tricorder about the size of a small handbag, which is also an electronic recorder, camera, sensor combination, immediately available to the captain should he be away from his command controls. Well, again, let's point out 1967, and they're saying it right here, equal to the men. And with the same abilities and treated with the same respect. Co-equal with males of the same rank. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, same level. We are still in a military organization. So, uh, yes. You know, they're not, these are not, uh, these are not written as, uh, you know, somehow, um, uh, you know, not, not uh, as efficient or, or not as um, professional or as capable as the men equal. That's right. And, uh, you know, it's uh, this is so important because, again, the era in which television was not doing that with their female characters. Yeah. So I mean, this is extremely important. I'll, I'll say as a fan. OK, now, obviously, like we have a different perspective on this now in 2021. And we sort of have a deeper understanding of all the things that were going on. But like but as a fan. When Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, I was a little disappointed that like that, yeah, we had all the other characters who were there on the bridge and we dealt with them and they felt like they were all sort of part of the family. But I was like, where was Yeoman Ran? Right. She was in the transporter room. She was in the transporter room. But it was, but it felt like like she was to me, like as a as a kid growing up watching Star Trek, Yeoman Rand always felt more important um, than some of the other supporting characters did. And it was just always odd to me as a kid. I'm not saying now. Now I fully get it. No, no, it, I, right? I know what you're saying. That it felt like a demotion. Yeah. Like it, it was it wasn't worthy of her stature because she had been a bridge officer and now she was down in the transporter room. Right. Well, obviously, with how she handled the transporter accident, uh, well, maybe hmm. she didn't even belong there. Well, what we got back didn't live very long. <laughs> Fortunately. Fortunately. And then, of course, the, the, the <laughs> cast would not be uh, complete without a paragraph devoted to... Uh, Majel! <laughs> ner- is to Majel. Majel in every Bible? <laughs> Close to it. I mean, I, I mean, I love when they had Lewax on Troy in the Deep Space Nine Bible. Yeah. Uh, Nurse Christine Chapel, And this describes her as being um, having several university degrees in research medicine. She's found a measure of contentment in this life as a Starfleet nurse and wanderer. Of course, that's because Dr. Richard Corby... Robert Corby turned out to be an Roger, android. Roger, Roger Corby Roger. turned out to be Roger. A, a, three times. Turned out Roger. to be a, uh, which is uh, just, uh, just uh, you know. Anyway, so uh, I added that part about Roger Corby being an android, but uh, but um, anyway, it, it says uh, <laughs> it says uh, has a near professional confidant of bones. Uh, oh, it, it, and I'm saying it's like he he's she is as close to a professional confidant as the irascible Bones McCoy is likely to have. That relationship never transgresses onto the personal. And an unspoken bond is the fact that she too is in Starfleet service because of a tragic romance. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that'd be Roger Corby. 
I think it's unspoken because they never talk about it. <laughs> I know. Right. It's like, wow. I mean, I don't even think the novels did that. It's so unspoken. <laughs> you don't even know what the hell it is. Yeah, yeah. Now, now the next section is devoted to standing sets. Now, be oh. interested to see if there are any standing sets they did not use. My guess is that since this was written at the end of the first season, it is only sets that we've seen. I don't think there's going to be any yeah. like, wow, how come they never shot that? And some things are saying are redresses, right? Like I, yeah. I, I fixed on, oh, the ship's chapel, but redress the transporter room. And of course, well, we do were, see the ship's cap, the, the ship's chapel. Well, they like, were, they, the, they were amazing at redressing sets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you have to be, right? That's just good producing. Now, Absolutely. Mark, I'm going to bring up a, a point of order. Um, oh, shit. We're, we're, uh, we've gone about uh, an hour and a half. Might I suggest that we cut this episode here and return next week with a continuation of the TOS Bible? Are you saying that this should be a two-part episode? That I'm this saying, is the menagerie? I'm that, saying. Uh, are, 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 are these transmissions coming, coming from Talos 4? 4. That's well, exactly hold on. what I'm saying. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me ring my bell so that I can signal the end of this episode. And the beginning of another ding, ding. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think uh, I second the motion. Ashley, do, do I hear a third? Do we I hear, hear a negative third. vote? We are unanimous. <laughs> um, okay. Well, then we are unanimous. So uh, this was part one of the original Star Trek Bible. And we'll return here to this very spot next week with part Same two. Bat time. Of Same Genesis. bat channel. Genesis Exploring the Original Series Bible, Part 2. And until then, I want to thank Bill Ritter, our fantastic sound engineer, our producers, Natalie Miscali, Peter Holmstrom, Zach Raggetts, and all of you for continuing to indulge us by listening to this podcast, our sister podcast as well. And of course, I encourage you to join us on our sister podcast, The Trexpert's Briefing Room entirely different podcast where we do audio <laughs> commentary for various significant Star Trek episodes. So until Ashley, Darren, and myself return next week, and you can find out how this all ends, um, <laughs> I want to tell you one last thought, and that is to keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.